Again, again, good morning. That was better. All right, just checking. Um, so the gala. You know, we don't, we don't do 50th birthday parties, you know, every year. So can I, can I just give you a sense of what it's going to look like? So you're going to come through the front doors, the atrium, the new atrium, this atrium. It's just going to be set up with all kinds of food serving places. So you meet lovers, some carving stations, you fancy hors d'oeuvre people, fancy hors d'oeuvres. You just get me to the sweet table, lots of sweet tables and some fun specialty drinks. And then imagine live entertainment. So you classical folks, some, uh, the, the grand piano flute over there. Some of you go, well, I kind of like that, kind of a little different. So Travis Agnew over here with the tin, listen to this, tin roof sparrow band. That's going to be jamming here at this end. And then if you go, I kind of like moving a little bit, kick off your shoes and you get to some country dancing. We got the Wooden Nickel Orchestra in the Activity Center live. They're going to be playing. It's going to be, it's going to be a party. In the, in the chapel then, there's going to be tables set up on video. It's going to be Michael Jr., one of the funniest comedians, Christian guy. That's going to be going in there. Fifth graders and below, there's some great stuff going on for the kids. We don't feed them, so get them fed here, but there'll be a lot of fun things. Uh, so talk about a great date night. I mean, we're talking about, you, you can take a date for 20 bucks. If you've got kids, that's, that's included, and your entertainment's included. This is a great time to bring a friend who doesn't know anything about the church, introduce them to it. It's going to be a great party. One of the things that's going to be set up is going to be this exhibit, this, this uh, picture exhibit of these photographs that kind of give us a historical overview of the last 50 years through pictures, photographs. So it's going to be a great time. Sign up for that. We've we got room for a lot of people. We have room for you. So grab a ticket, bring a friend, bring the family, bring your small group, whatever. It's all good. All right. So Proverbs, message four. Um, this, is a, this, is a, this is a subject that is difficult. It is a book that keeps getting right down to street level because Proverbs is all about taking the word of God, applying it to the heart of someone who loves God to help us live out what it looks like to love God and love our neighbor everyday life. So we've been talking about money. We've been talking about our words. And today's subject is, it's a hard one. It's a difficult one. It's the subject of sex or sexuality. It's a difficult subject because it's one that we don't talk about it very much. We're not sure how to talk about it. There's a lot of disappointments. There's some longings. There's some things that we've once had we don't have. Maybe we're widowed. Maybe we're divorced. Maybe we're wondering if we're ever going to be married. It's a difficult subject because we don't know how to navigate this topic in our world when God's message is going this way and the world's message is going a completely different way. And honestly, at the heart of the difficulty of the subject is just the pain that it's caused and that we've experienced. And so there's a boatload of guilt and there's lots of hurts that are all wrapped around this subject of sex. So before we even get into Proverbs, what I felt like we needed to do is just kind of address those two things, uh, the guilt and this whole area of hurts from abuse. So one of the things that's really important to know is sexual sin does not have an asterisk that says, Jesus died for all the sins of the world, except for these, not these. These are kind of special. And these will damn you for life and separate you from God for eternity. We, we, we may feel that way. 
We may believe the lie that that's true, but that is in fact not true. So I want us to read together words penned by King David who fell big time in sexual sin. We know he committed adultery. We know part of the cover-up was murder. And we could also say he likely committed rape because I don't know if Bathsheba really had a choice in the matter when the king sent his envoys to go fetch her. So we read these words from King David. Would you just join me out loud? We'll read them together. This is good for us to hear as we celebrate the mercy and forgiveness of God. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions. So he's blessed, he says, he's forgiven because he stopped hiding it, covering up, functioning and operating in deceit, and he came clean. That's what the Bible says. Proverbs 28, 13 will say this. Wonderful truth. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We've got to remember that Jesus levels the playing field. So that this is the truth. When Jesus says, Breaking the seventh command, thou shalt not commit adultery, happens not just when you sleep with another man's wife, not your own, but when you look at a woman wishing that you could sleep with her, thinking about that. When you lust, you've broken the commandment. Remember the time when the religious leaders, feeling so smug, wanting to trap Jesus, catch this woman literally in the act of adultery, bring her out to Jesus, and they say, what should we do? Scriptures say Jesus is writing in the ground. Can't wait to ask him that question in heaven. What was that you were writing? But we know what he said. He looked up at the men and he said, he who's without sin cast the first stone because the law said under Moses and Deuteronomy and other places that anyone who commits adultery needs to be killed by stoning. Jesus says, whoever's without sin, go ahead, throw the first stone. And one by one, The rocks fell, and Jesus said to the woman, Where are your accusers? She says, They're not here. He says, I don't find fault with you. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. So we've we've all have levels of brokenness here. And one of the things we've got to wrestle with is, so I acknowledge brokenness, I've confessed brokenness, so why do I still have, why do I have guilt about things that have happened a long time ago? not just the things that happened recently. What is it about this kind of sin? Why is that happening? And one of the things we have to remember is that the enemy is a specialist in kind of what we used to call COD, charge on delivery, sending back the package. And the package is of our sin and actions and the guilt with it. And he convinces us 
that, you know, God could, would never forgive us for that. I mean, how many times have we done stuff like that? And so he starts accusing us. That's one of his roles. Because in accusing us, he drives us and separates us from God's grace and God's service. So we start thinking now he's right because his accusations are based on the facts of, yeah, I did that. So it's not like he's making up that lie. The lie is God's response to that as I confessed it. But we've forgotten that because he's reminded us of the sin. And now we're going, oh, yeah. And, and now we're starting to think, yeah, of course God doesn't like me. because Now we move away from grace, forgetting that I got in this relationship with God because of his free gift, not because of my godly performance. So I move away from grace and now I start to wallow in my guilt and I believe the lie that God couldn't love me, hence God could never want to use me to do anything for him. And I just get neutralized. I become ineffective for him. That's a huge concept for us to understand when we're dealing with guilt. There is such a thing as false guilt where we're feeling guilty about things we should not be feeling guilty because we've confessed that and we got to claim the truth. And that's part of the fight of faith. John, 1 John 1, 9, I have confessed and he's cleansed me. I don't feel it right now, but I've got to just function and believe that I am clean. Not because of what I've done, because of what Christ has done. So there's guilt. And then there's this whole matter of abuse and all the pain. And friends, just in this room, if, if there was a way to amplify, to project the heartache that has been experienced just in this room because of sexual abuse, we would be stunned and shocked at the volume and the depth of that pain. The Bible says... In Isaiah chapter 53, speaking prophetically in the future about Christ's impending death, that it says, by his wounds, we are healed. We find healing through Christ. We find the ability to forgive those who have done such wrong through Christ. We find wholeness from that which has just torn our souls apart through Christ and his love and his grace. It's really important. And so before we get into Proverbs, I, I want us just to remember Christ's work on the cross is sufficient for the guilt that we face and for the hurts that have been done in this whole area. And before we get into Proverbs, I also want us to know, let's just go back to the very beginning to remember that sex was God's idea. Like it wasn't Hugh Hefner's idea. It was God's idea. He placed it right in the heart of a loving covenant that is a committed marriage. Adam and Eve, this permanent, exclusive relationship where they, and like all others after them, are called to leave all other allegiances so that we can be united as superglue adhesion to one another that is rooted not just in our words but in our actions, this ongoing commitment. And, and it is demonstrated and held together and protected through this one flesh union that the prophet Malachi says is more than just body. It is actually body and soul. It's body and spirit. 
This is God's good idea. This is the command at the very beginning that sets up the family. This is the gift that he's placed in that marriage relationship that brings children in this world. And listen, it brings great joy and pleasure and fulfillment. God is not the cosmic killjoy. The Bible is not... just a book of rules that squashes and takes out all the fun of life. The Bible actually has a whole book that celebrates marital intimacy, marital love, the Song of Solomon, a whole book. Read it tonight and you go, whoa, that was in the Bible? It's in the Bible. Like these verses, Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer, May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. It's God's good gift placed within a covenant marriage. It's powerful. This gift that brings life into this world is also the gift that destroys life. Take this fire outside a marriage, it's destructive. Keep it in, oh, it's it's beautiful. It's beautiful. The destruction of this fire is physical, spiritual, social, economic. It affects every area of our life we're going to see in in Proverbs 6. And because it's powerful, placed at the heart of God's saving purpose, purposes that move forward through the family, a husband and wife, who if God blesses them with children, raise those kids to love God and point others to him. This couple who is to reflect the greater relationship of Christ and the church that it should not surprise us, it becomes then the front line of the enemy's attack and and assault. We should expect that. And so, turn to Proverbs 5 as we get going here and take a look. We're not going to do a whole, we did some background, okay, in Genesis, but we're not going to look at all the New Testament. We're going to get to some of that in our study of Corinthians in just a bit. But we're going to focus in on, on Proverbs. And Proverbs is just reminding us there's two ways to live life. There's two paths to take. There's God's path. That's a path that leads to life. There's, there's the other path that's not marked by wisdom, but by folly. That's the path that leads to destruction. Okay, there's the straight path, God's path. There's the crooked path, the path and any path that is not God's. And we notice in verse one, the, the address is to his son. So this is addressed, Solomon to his son, So it makes it clear that this is for young in the audience, for older, for single, for married, for the wise, for the not yet wise, maybe the naive, maybe the gullible, maybe the foolish. And because it's written to his son, we can just as easily apply these things to the other genders if Solomon were talking to one of his daughters. So apply it that way for both men and women as we're listening to God's word. So verse one, my son... Pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ear to my words of insight that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly but she does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. 
Do not go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors. And I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. Chapters 5 and 7 give us extended teaching on this topic. Very unusual in our study of Proverbs. So chapters 1 through 9 kind of flow like that. One kind of continuous uh, flow. Then from chapters 20 to 31, it's just all these just random Proverbs that have been collected. So this is unique. This is very unique. And as we come to chapter 5 and chapter 7, these big chunks, here's what we want to do is understand that it's helping us know if we're on the right path. If we're really walking down the path of wisdom. It's letting us know this. If a person's walking down the path of wisdom, God's path, they actually first hear and they follow. They heed the warnings. Then we're going to see that one of the other things, and there's like tons of warnings. It's like the dominant teaching practice here of Solomon to his sons. He just keeps warning him, watch out, watch out, watch out. And, and the dominant warning, warning could basically be summed up in this. Son, when you take sex outside of marriage, this thing which is this great gift to marriage becomes such a destructive thing to your life and to other people. Take it out of marriage and you're going to get hurt and you're going to hurt other people. Then he'll go and he'll say at the end of chapter 5 that you know you're walking down the path of wisdom because you're following the advice. So in the second half of chapter 5, he, he tells us, hey, here's, here's not what you should not do, but here's what you should do. So it's all these positive things. And then finally, he ends the chapter in the last three verses by reminding us a person that is walking down the path of wisdom lives life in such a way that they understand that everything they think, say, and do is always under full view of God and full review of God. And that is to help us understand that we are accountable. Our life does have meaning. Our actions do matter. The consequences for our actions do matter. So we start then with these words of warning. So I saw a, um, a documentary. Lori and I were watching a documentary this week on K2. Heard of K2? Second highest mountain, over 20,000, 28,000 feet. Um, what's interesting about K2 is only about 300 people have climbed K2. The highest mountain, Everest, almost 5,000 people have climbed Everest. And one of the reasons so few people have climbed it is because it's so hard. And it's so deadly and dangerous. And if you and I were climbing K2, we'd hear all about, long before we ever got there, if you know anything about K2, and I see some climbers in the audience, you know about the bottleneck. What's the bottleneck? The bottleneck is in that final ascent to the summit where you're literally going up a a pitch that's 80 to 90%. Whoa, 
and there's this big, big old cornice of snow and ice, the wind's flying through it, and at least 10 of the climbers died right there in the bottleneck. And so you want to heed and hear all the, fa- all the warnings from those who've been up in the bottleneck and especially those who've been up and come back because your goal isn't just to get through it and not just to get up it, but to get back it. And you're going through that bottleneck twice. So you're listening. You're paying attention because it's dangerous. And there's a sense where this whole topic of sexuality, woo, this is, you know, it's only 100 meters long. Sex is a very precarious place. A lot of people have destroyed their lives right there in that narrow path. So, like a parent, he's warning his sons, like our parents did, right? When we were little, they don't touch that. It's hot. You hurt yourself. Um, Don't put your finger in that outlet. That's going to hurt too. Don't. Don't run out in the street. Don't play in the street. Look both ways, but a lot of warnings about the street. And it's like Solomon saying, okay, listen. Listen, don't play in the street. That's dangerous. Don't take sex outside of the fence line of marriage. That's dangerous. That's the primary warning. And he says there's some things that will veer you off that course. And so beware of it. Beware the smooth talker, that guy, that, that woman. Those sweet words make you feel so loved, so important. Don't forget, so sweet, sweet as honey, uh, they, they turn sour. They'll give you a serious case of indigestion. Those smooth, buttery, French silk words, oh, no, actually, don't be fooled. Those end up being double-edged swords that wreak all kinds of of pain and hurt. Warning. Watch the smooth words. Watch the flatterer. Don't believe everything they're saying. Warning. Don't forget you reap what you sow. Don't let the immediate gratification of pleasure today hide the fact that there's a big, huge price to be paid. Free sex is a lie. There are consequences, so know the true cost. Notice what he says. Your honor and dignity, your reputation, your character comes into play. What happens behind doors most often doesn't stay behind doors. Verse 14, did you see it? I was soon in serious trouble. Where? In the assembly of God's people. He got out. His wealth, his hard work going to others, economic toll, self-respect, That's lost. Wishing he had heeded, wishing he had exercised some self-control, a life of regrets for not paying attention to his teachers who were teaching him the truth of God's word. And so then what he does in chapter 7, turn over to chapter 7, is he gives his sons and us this story. I don't know if this is something he actually saw looking out over the palace wall or if this is something that he made up like Jesus, a parable to teach a greater truth. Verse six, at the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice. I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who had no sense. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house at twilight as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. 
Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. She's unruly, this woman, and defiant. Her feet never stay at home, now on the street, now on the squares. At every corner she lurks. She took hold of him and kissed him. And with a brazen face, she said, Today I fulfill my vows, and I have food for my fellowship offering at home. So I came out to meet you. I looked for you and have found you. I've covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money and will not be home till full noon. No one's going to know. Oh, that's not in the text. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk all at once, all at once, all at once. He followed her like an ox going to a slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Now then, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to your... Turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she's brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. So this is, this is like warnings everywhere. Four more you could just put alongside the ones we've already looked at in chapter five. Here's one category I say this is the warning that says, Don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. When you hang out in the wrong places, at the wrong times, by yourself, good things don't happen. Don't be stupid. Pay attention to where you're going. It was not a good thing that he was alone heading towards her house at the end of the day. It was not a good thing. That was a stupid thing. Don't be stupid and believe that you're the only one like he did. Moi? You were waiting for me? Really? Wow. Don't be stupid and believe that you're the only one, that you'll only be the only one, that, you, that you're, you, you've always been the only one. There's never been another one. Don't believe those lies. Don't be stupid and think that no one will know. No one's going to find out that you can get away with it. Don't be stupid. There's a second warning here. Don't rationalize this sin. I don't know if you notice in verse 14... There's something really interesting about what happens here. And that is she wraps up her sexual advance in religious language. I've just offered these fellowship sacrifices and now we need to eat these sacrifices so you can help me. You can help me make my religious commitments to my God. For some people that were pagans in that day, that meant having sex as part of the fertility rites to the gods of fertility that they were worshiping. Or maybe she's actually some quasi-God-fear who's saying, because there are fellowship offerings in the Old Testament, you know, that's what you do. You've got to complete the offering by eating it with thanksgiving. So don't rationalize your sin by wrapping it up in religious activity and, and talk. Well, yeah, I know we sleep together regularly, but man, we got great Bible studies. I mean, we got a really meaningful prayer life. We really love Jesus. We're not loving Jesus and serving Jesus when we're breaking from Jesus' ways. This is not right. This is a rationalization that at the heart is, 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 really, 
It's really twisted. Don't rationalize breaking God's word with worship. Remember what the prophet said? To obey, he said to King Saul, who was doing that. To obey is better than sacrifice. That's true worship, our obedience. Here's a third warning. Don't be fooled by appearances. Well, we already heard that. The smooth talk. Well, here's one about the bedroom. Hey, the bedroom's actually a battlefield, he says. And there are strewn corpses all around, piles of them. And you're just going to be another one. There's ones before you. There's going to be ones after you. Don't be fooled by appearances. Her beauty, her smooth talk, her bedroom. And don't be fooled by where it all leads. Because the bed isn't the destination, he says. It doesn't lead where you think. It's a deadly trap. The path isn't a shortcut. It's not a wrong turn. It's a dead end that leads to the grave. And to make that point, three startling images. Did you hear them? Did you see them? So there's the strong ox. There's that graceful deer prancing in the woods, out in the meadow, wherever. And then there's that bird flying around. And he says, so here's what happens. Here's how it becomes a trap that is so destructive. It's just like this big, strong ox that doesn't know what's about to happen. He's being led to this place of slaughter. He's going to stand there in a moment. His jugular is going to be severed. His throat is going to be slipped. And he's going to drop on all floors dead. Just like that deer who's just prancing, having a great old time, just having a great day in the woods. And all of a sudden, uh uh-oh. Or uh uh-oh. And then trapped. Can't get out. And the hunter comes and pierces the deer's vitals with an arrow. Just like that bird freely flying and all of a sudden it says, hey, I'm going to go this way. Darts to the left. Leaves the path, right? And all of a sudden traps. Powerful images for those young men in Solomon's day for us today. There's another one that we probably can relate to a little better because most of us don't slaughter cattle and There is a few deer hunters here, um, not too many that snare birds, but we get this one. Go back to chapter um, 6 here and look at verse 27 because the metaphor here is of fire. Can a man scoop fire, verse 27, can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? What's the obvious answer? No, So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. So Proverbs is saying we're playing with fire when we take sex outside of marriage. We're playing with fire. So the image I have here of dumping the coals is I'm a Weber kettle guy. I don't know if you're a gas grill guy or gal, but I'm a Weber kettle guy, old school, right? So I start with this chimney and I pour all the, I I pour all, I just get it all high full of charcoal briquettes, all right? put the little newspaper underneath, I light it. And then pretty soon, there's a flame. And pretty soon, there's some red things going on and then the edges of the charcoal. And pretty soon, it's just white hot. And I take that handle and then I go like this and I drop it into the kettle. But he's saying, no, imagine you've got this full of hot coals and you just dump it in your lap. Just sit down and go, I'm just going to warm up a little bit. You, you think that's not going to do any damage? I remember one of the girls, we were at a, at a friend's house for a, a life group, 
get together, and we were all on this deck, and there were a lot of people. One of the girls brushed her arm against a hot Weber kettle, third-degree burn. Oh, man, we know what that does. This is, this is a really powerful metaphor for us to have because it works both ways. In the right place, a fire in a fireplace, that's, that's beautiful. We love the warmth of that. We love the sounds and the sights of it. That's beautiful. When the fire is out of the fireplace and the house is burning down, oh man, that's destructive. That's destructive. Treat sex like fire. There's an image, fire, the positive, the negative. So those are the warnings. Those are the warnings. So go back to chapter 5, verse 15 through 20. It gives us the advice. You know you're following the path of wisdom when you heed this advice. And, and the advice is counterintuitive because it's like not stop doing this, but pursue marital love. Be satisfied with the love of your spouse. So, verse 15, using the uh, metaphor of water to talk about sexual union within marriage, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. By the way, strangers is the same word for the adulteress, the adulterer, strange woman, someone who's not... Your wife, okay? May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? So here it's just, it's going the complete different. It's not telling us how we should not think and what we should not do, what we should not stay away from. It's saying move towards this. Pursue marital love. Celebrate that and guard it. You go, oh man, that's great for those of you who are married. Uh, what about me? Well, we're going to get to this. This actually is, is a good teaching for us whether we're married or single, whether we're of age to be married or not. So this, this is a command here. Drink water is, is a command Be satisfied is a command. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. These are commands. So these aren't things that when you feel good about it, when it seems right, this is something you should know. This is is a commitment that we have in this one flesh union to enjoy and be refreshed, to celebrate, to guard and protect this exclusive relationship. Not just guard and protect it physically so you don't, take that to any other place. You don't take the waters. You don't take sex outside in the streets with another woman. You, you not just protect it physically, but emotionally. So how many times have I heard it that the affair in the marriage started with two people who were at work, two people who had some kind of a connection. Maybe they were old high school sweethearts, whatever, and and they connect, and there's this emotional exchange. One of the worst things you can do is share the struggles in your marriage with someone of the opposite sex, not your spouse. You are opening yourself up for a world of hurt here. So it's protecting us, not just physically, but emotionally. We talk about they had an emotional affair. 
Most emotional affairs end in the expression of that emotional connection. So we guard that. We keep the fence high around our marriage. And so how this works for singles is, well, we start protecting our marriage today by pursuing sexual purity. You go, well, that's in my rearview mirror. Well, you start today. You start today. You find forgiveness for yesterday and everything that's happened in the past. And you start today. And you, you avail yourself to God's grace and his spirit and the community of other people. That guy was vulnerable. He was picked off. He was alone in the wrong place at the wrong time. You get in community. You commit yourself. You keep living in grace, seeking to please God and to honor God in your life today as a single person. You rejoice and you find satisfaction. And how you do that as a single is obviously not through sex, but it's how you think about sex. So you can grow up single going, I know it's not right, I know it's not right, I know it's not right. And then you get married and you go, I still know it's not right, I still, no, that's not going to work. And so even as a single, we're thinking correctly about sex. This is a gift. This is a great gift. It is that which is to be pursued and enjoyed and celebrated. So in the New Testament, it talks very candidly to couples, and it says this. Do not deprive. This is 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5. Do not deprive each other. It's talking about sexually coming together. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So pursue this. This is a great gift from God that doesn't just bring um, blessing and fulfillment and pleasure, but protection, protection to the union that is sacred. And so here's the third thing that helps us know that we're on the right path. Verse 21 through 23 living with an understanding that all we think, say, and do is in full view of God. For your ways are in full view of the Lord. Got it? And he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. They trip them up. The cords of their sins hold them fast. So we call addictions. Can't break it. For lack of discipline, they will die led astray by their own great folly. So as a pastor, I've had a front row seat to just the devastating effects of sexual sin. I've seen how infidelity breaks trust, tears marriages apart. I've seen how porn is, is a huge issue that is working against marriages. I've had a front row seat to sexual abuse and the trauma and all the aftermath of that. I have seen sex used as a weapon. I've seen and heard it all. I have seen more and know of more good godly men who have fallen in this area just this week, heard of another, to know that I would be a fool to ever say to you, could never happen to me. But I've also had a front row seat to seeing not only marriages go down from these things, but God's grace 
bring couples together in the way that they have... Nobody wants to go back when your marriage is ruined. That's not the offer of God. God is to make something new out of something that is dead. To bring beauty from ashes. And I have seen the beauty of God's grace and his mercy and forgiveness bring reconciliation and healing and wholeness and peace from all that could so easily have destroyed us individually and together as a couple and our family. I've seen it all. And I praise God for that. But I have to say, I've been, and I'm not a philosopher. Like, I, I'm, I, like I had one philosophy class, and I don't know how I didn't flunk it, because all I did in answering the test questions were re-articulating the test question, and I got a B. So I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a philosopher. I'll just be right up front with you. But I have been kind of philosophizing about, so what is it about sex that it's such a big deal? So, like, how can you watch sports without seeing sex? How can you watch a movie? How can you watch a sitcom? How can you hear a song these days without talking about love? I mean, it's just everywhere. It's everywhere. Advertising. It's all being sold, most of it anyways, through sex. What is it? What is it about sex? Is it just because we are created as sexual beings? Well, that's true. Is it because, well, it's at the heart of God's saving purposes? Well, what about all the people who aren't about God's saving purposes? What is it about sex? Why is it such a big thing? So I've been thinking, is it possible that our search for sex isn't fundamentally about sex? That it's actually fundamentally about love? About knowing and being known. Isn't it interesting that the word used to describe the very first uh, marital intimacy in the Bible in Genesis 4, ch- chapter 4, verse 1, is that Adam knew his wife. Isn't it interesting that in 1 Corinthians 7, when, when the, there is an exception to when you don't move forward and continue to to practice this grace-filled discipline of coming together as one in marriage, that the reason you wouldn't do it is so that I think you pray means you, you better know God. You stay focused on Him. You fast and pray. So maybe the reason sex is such a big thing is because we were created to be loved and to love. And if Proverbs is, is the distil, uh, distillization of the law, helping us understand how to actually work out the law in everyday life, and if Jesus says the law is really summed up in loving God, then maybe all this talk about sex is really about God. And maybe the, the, the sex issues that are going on in our lives individually and in our marriages and relationships are fundamentally reminding us that That though a gift and though we are sexual beings, what we long for can only be satisfied in God. Maybe that's what Lewis is getting at in his book, Mere Christianity. When he says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And can I add something, someone greater? 
So maybe that's why sex is everywhere. Because we were made for relationship with God where we are loved by God and we share his love with those around us. I mean, have you ever figured out that if there's no marriage in heaven, then there's no sex in heaven? And we go, how can, how can, how can that be? Well, is it possible that the difference between sexual intimacy today and this complete, perfect, pure relating with God and with each other is as different as holding hands and marital love? I don't know. All I know is we're not going to miss it. We're not going to go, but what about the sex part? Come on, God. You're holding out. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. So what is it we're chasing in this idol? And sex is so easily an idol. It's a convenient savior that I turn to for a sense of security. I feel loved and safe and secure in his arms, in her arms. I, I turn to it because it's, it's a, such an easy place to, to find sex to be my savior of significance. Man, I'm loved. I'm important. Look at all these people who, who like me, who think I'm attractive. See, see we, we can turn it, and, and, and that's what we're looking for. We're looking for love, right? We're, we're wanting to be known and accepted. We want security, sense of power, identity, comfort, and we, we're looking for it in, in love, in sex, and we're turning the gift into something it can't. Only the giver of the gift can. And so isn't it interesting that when Jesus showed up, here's how he was described prophetically, in Isaiah 53, he had no beauty. He was sporting no six-pack. He wasn't going to make GQ quarterly front page. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. We see Jesus in the crowd when he walked. We wouldn't, he wouldn't have stood out. The perfect son of God. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. And when we understand the dimensions of God's love for us in Christ, the good news, the gospel, we understand that at the cross, we work it out, that we're loved, that we have significance, that our life has meaning, that we have security, at the cross, that I can find peace. He was separated, so I should not be separated. He was rejected, so I could become a child of God. He was fixed, nailed to a cross, so I could be set free from this deadly trap and all the guilt of my life. He's my life. He's my security, my perfect lover, no games. And every gap and every disappointment, married or single, the brokenness of our life always drives us, needs to drive us to this relationship where we are perfectly loved and there is no gap and there is no shortcomings. Pleasures forever in his, at his right hand. 
May we see the beauty of Christ, that we would love Christ more than sex. And when we love Jesus more than sex, we're positioned to walk this path wisely in a world that would so easily take us astray. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your good word, your reminder that it doesn't stutter on the issues of life, that you want all of our life, all of it. We're reminded that it's all in full view. We're humbled by that. And yet we find that a severe grace as we live out our lives today, this week. Lord, we know we've all sinned and fallen short of your glory, even in this area. And so we call to you for mercy and grace. And Lord, as we seek to heed the warnings and take your advice and remember how to live our lives, mostly we pray that we would love your son and to do that, that we would see him. Lord, I pray for the pastors that preach here, for the teachers that teach our kids, the small group leaders that lead our students, that we would be growing in our understanding of your of your beautiful perfections, that we would find ourselves more and more filled with you so that we're not longing for these other things that just can't deliver and that out of your fullness, we would grace our marriages. We would grace our future marriages. We would find enough grace to navigate even what you call the gift of singleness. And so, Lord, I pray. I pray that you'd call us closer to you, deeper with you, into relationship with you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.